We all have dreams. Some people seem to live theirs while others seem to struggle. This is, however, merely a perception. What if you could get the answers you needed to execute on your dreams? Welcome to the Platinum Mask Podcast, a show designed to ask various young professionals just how they deal with their specific ups and downs. How does one young upstart navigate competing with name brand companies? Where do we get the best tools? How do we grow from our stress and anxiety? Most importantly, how do we properly utilize our cash flow? The Platinum Mask Podcast with your host, Grayson Mask. We wanted answers, so we're going out to get them and sharing them with you. Let's get right into today's episode. Hello to everyone listening to That Platinum Mask Podcast. I am Grayson Mask. I have with me Adam Von Gucken of High Clear Castle Gin. And we're also giving a shout out to Lord and Lady Carnarvon. And this was kind of an episode that I really wanted to dive into and have a conversation with just because, you know, I've kind of mentioned before, I'm wanting to have more wine and spirits conversations. But really, when I kind of saw this um, in really this High Clear Castle gym, I saw multiple articles and kind of checked out the Instagram, saw on social media feeds. But, you know, when I started the conversation and they kind of mentioned Adam Von Gucken, um, and sent me his bio, I didn't know it was kind of that bizarre of a story and, um, you know, just uh, how interesting kind of uh, his background was in gin and moonshine and some of these other spirits. And so I, you know, definitely said I was interested and wanted to reach out. So thank you again, Adam, for jumping on this episode with me and, you know, having this conversation. Of course, it's great to be here. And I appreciate your interest in, in what we're building and what we're creating. Yeah, for sure. Well, I really wanted to kind of dive in first into, I saw um, a little bit about your background um, before uh, High Clear Castle Gin, you know, you were with a few companies and I was kind of wondering if, uh, you know, if you had, if your family had a strong background within um, either the gin market or just wine and spirits in general. And, you know, did that, I guess, influence your, you know, did you see that a lot growing up or did that influence um your ambitions into the wine and spirits market? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. My, uh, my family was actually pretty renowned in the New England area for, for liquor. Um, you know, in the 1800s, we had a, a very big uh, whiskey distillery here. Um, and actually, we, we lost the distillery in around 1865 because one of my ancestors decided to ship about 800 barrels of, of whiskey up to Canada and try to avoid paying the taxes on it. And so the federal government took the distillery away from us. And we had, as far as I know, we had very little, if, if any, connection to the liquor industry between that period of time and Prohibition. And during Prohibition, we had a, a hotel in Middletown, Connecticut, which is right on the Connecticut River, where um, with two steamship ferry boats that would make daily runs to New York City with people and with goods. And, uh, and as it happened, Prohibition comes in 1919. And in the basement of this hotel, my great grandfather and uh, and his brothers essentially put together a, a a speakeasy in the basement, serving moonshine and gin and other you know illegally begotten things, and uh, and kind of rode that wave for the duration of of prohibition. And then when prohibition ended, uh, shortly thereafter, you know, a few years later, they sold the hotel. And uh, it still exists today, actually not as a hotel anymore. It's actually an Italian club, but the building still exists. 
Mm. I actually didn't know about this history um, until I decided to get into the liquor industry. So it's almost like a weird genetic or kind of DNA universe calling kind of thing. Um, and when I decided to, to build the first distillery in Connecticut um, to have been built in, in many, many decades, I was telling the story to my grandmother and I said, we're going to build a distillery in Connecticut. And she said, oh my God, you wouldn't believe, I can't believe you're saying this. You know, your great grandfather had a hotel with a speakeasy and then the family had a, a distillery in the 1800s. So I, I actually did not know about any of the family history until I got into the business. Kind of odd. Yeah. That's wild. Did, uh, did your great grandfather have any like Al Capone stories or anything like that as a speakeasy? Yeah. So this side of my family is it's my mother's maiden name is Chafee and they were, they were a pretty renowned and, and still are a renowned family in new England um, with um, the recent governor of Rhode Island and a con- the congressman from Rhode Island, both being Chafees. These are like second cousins of mine. And uh, I wouldn't say that, it, you know, in New England, moonshining and, and, and that kind of business. Remember, the, the, the distillery that we had in the 1800s was legal. So it wasn't like there was uh, it wasn't like gun running and stuff like that. During oh, Prohibition, okay. even it was a little bit more low key in New England than it was down south. Down south, it was really becoming a, 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 a kind of trade that required fast cars and guns. And it was kind of a gangster thing. In New England, it never really quite became that. I mean, east of New York City, it was always more low key. You had gentlemen farmers making moonshine and whiskey quietly. That was being kind of traded on the black market. And then you had some speakeasies around Boston, Hartford, New Haven, for sure, and Providence, Rhode Island. Um, so it was it was a little bit more low key. So, no, we didn't have kind of a, a, a kind of mafia or gangster kind of mentality. I think it was a little bit more like, come on in. There's some hospitality downstairs, if you know what I mean. You know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Definitely. No, I can kind of... Uh... Yeah, I've kind of done like research into the history. Yeah, and I kind of uh, I didn't know that there were so many states that I, I guess the amount of loopholes during kind of the time of prohibition or like, um, you know, that some states kind of didn't really enforce it while other states, you know, it was definitely a very illegal vice. But uh, you kind of mentioned earlier on, you know, knowing the history when you finally got into the uh, wine and spirits environment. So before that, um, you know, what uh, industry were you involved in? And I guess what started that transition um, back into wine and spirits? Well, I, I left college after one semester and I did not do very well. And, uh, and th- thankfully, my wife, uh, you know, went all the way through through law school and was able to do her thing. And so it's, it's a good balance. I was never really an academic um, in a structured kind of way, I wasn't an academic and I much preferred to kind of create my own library and read my own books and kind of do it at my own, uh, pace. So I've been very entrepreneurial since, since I can remember really. And, um, and that kind of led us into the music industry. Um, so in my, my, my early and mid twenties, um, you know, we were music producers and, and, and I had built a recording studio and, and I've always been passionate. I'm still very passionate about music. Um, and at some point I remember my wife telling me that, I can either, uh, uh, you know, choose the music industry or, um, or choose her. And so I said, okay, sweetheart, you know, give me two weeks to figure out, uh, I'm done with this because the music industry is very taxing and it requires, you know, uh, there's things about it that aren't conducive necessarily to, um, a super balanced life. So she, she said, uh, you know, you pick one basically. And so I, I gave it some thought. I said, give me two weeks and I'll figure out a new path. And two weeks later, I came back to her and said, 
I've got it. We're going to build a moonshine distillery. <laughs> so she, uh, she, she went with it and I'm, I'm glad I did it. And I, I, I love the liquor industry because, you know, there, there's a part of me that loves agriculture and farming. And, you know, there's, there's something about that kind of ancient art of having your hands in the soil and, and growing magically things from, from nature and the sun and the soil and the water. And when you can kind of cultivate that into something as beautiful as spirits and wine and beer, to me, it's uh it's like a miracle from, from, from God in the heavens. And so, uh, you know, the ability to t- kind of take that agricultural mindset, um, manufacture something and then bring people joy, do it in a beautiful way that, that kind of is, is, is around the environment of, of, of parties and, and enjoying good spirits, which is, um, bringing people together and good conversation, relaxed conversation, you know, uh, we call it grain to glass or garden to glass. That whole process enchants me. And it's why I'm still so happily in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, definitely a wild transition into kind of uh, starting the first gin distillery. But I can kind of see that, you know, maybe even though you didn't come from that industry, that really the high stress environments and uh, collaborations and kind of creative problem solving needed in kind of your recording and mu- music industry possibly helped with that transition. I, I kind of want to ask, um, you know, being uh, the first gin distillery, was there, I, I guess, a specific reason to gin outside of any other spirits? And, well, you know, is gin, uh, I guess, uh, is it, um, I'm kind of wondering on the reason why, you know, it's not as heavily a marketed as, as a spirit um, throughout the country. Yeah. So there's, there's kind of two conversations happening here because, because we're really talking about uh, the, the, the Onyx Moonshine Distillery. So that was just moonshine and whiskey that we started mm. in Connecticut. Um, that, that transitioned over the course of four or five years. We built a successful brand regionally here in New England with Onyx Moonshine and the whiskey that we did. It, it was at that point that I, I had learned a lot about the business. I mean, we were literally farming the corn. We were distilling the spirit. We were, you know, uh, you know, I lived on the road and with customers and doing events and being in liquor stores, being in restaurants. And, and that's really where I realized I was, I was kind of hooked in my, in my space. And it was then that I, 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 I noticed that so many of the brands that we drink are, are created in marketing boardrooms and the stories are completely made up and, you know, it, 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 the industry can, can can easily be overcome by some products that are are, are just not 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 very authentic, and I, I I wanted to 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 use what we had learned and to kind of fuse that idea of that genuine uh, sustainable agriculture with a brand that was um, I guess really had global ap- appeal and application, something that um, would resonate with people in a very deep way, and also was very deeply authentic to itself because um, it's a rarity. I mean, it's a rarity in all industries these days from, from clothing and what we eat to certainly what we drink. And, and that, that set me on, on, the, on the kind of path of the discovery of Heichler Castle and then the, the, the now creation of mm. Heichler Castle Gin. So it was, it was kind of two very different um, journeys that the, the, the distillery and the kind of getting back to my family's roots and, uh, and, and exploring what that really meant 
and, and building a distillery and creating a spirit from scratch that led me to the, the creation now of, of Heidner Castle Gin. It was very much a journey and I'm still on it. Definitely. And as the first uh, moonshine distillery, is it, I guess, what is New England typically known for? What do they uh, typically contribute to the national wine and spirits uh, market? Well, you know, New England's interesting because way back in the day when my family was doing it, I mean, this is where this is where a lot of the beer and whiskey was being made, uh, especially as you get back to the 1700s. Remember, there was um, whiskey back then. Whiskey comes from a, a Gaelic term, uh, the word Wescabau, which is Gaelic for water of life. That's where we get the word whiskey from. Whiskey was a clear spirit, what we would call today a moonshine or a very um, what you might call a high, uh, heavy character vodka. It came out of the still, it was bottled up, and then it was sold and it was consumed. So it was clear because it wasn't barrel aged in charred oak casks. It wasn't until they started transporting the whiskey and exporting it to other markets. Uh, and as they did that, they would use the same barrels that uh, anything else was used in. And barrels were how you transported things. So, for example, if a batch of fish, uh, dried fish arrived in New England from Virginia and it had dried fish in it. They would take the fish out, they would put the whiskey in it, and then they would sell it to some customer, you know, a, a, a pub or, you know, hotels or a town in Ohio. By the time it arrived there, it would, it would taste and smell of fish. So they, they, they kind of realized that they had to disassemble the casks and they had to char them. And by charring them, you really cleaned it. You, you got out the remnants of whatever was in it previously. Well, well then they, they would put the clear whiskey in. And then when it would go from A to B, and that might take weeks or in some cases months, when it arrived there, it had mellowed. It, it had turned slightly brown or amber. And that was really the natural organic discovery of brown spirits as we know them. There's a process through the charcoaling of the wood that purifies the spirit. It takes out some of the congeners and some of the bad things, and it replaces them with some of the vanillins, some of the good things that are naturally ingrained in the wood. And uh, the byproduct of that, of course, is it turns brown. And that, that, that kind of became the evolution of whiskey as we know it today. So New England has a, a you know, Today, not as much, but there was a time where New England was very much the, the kind of um, the leader of production for spirits. Um, we have great climate. We have great soil for grain, um, not sugar. Uh, sugar, of course, comes from down south, the Caribbean and, and Florida, things like that. So that was always more rum centric. Um, and we always had to import all of our rum. But whiskey has been a pretty, a pretty stable thing here. Um, and my inspiration for creating the Onyx Distillery was to recreate and bring back a New England style uh, moonshine that was very authentic to that time period and then barrel age it into the whiskey that we produced. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, neither are in production right now. We closed this distillery right before um, COVID happened to focus on Highclere. But my intentions and plans are to reopen it when we find the right situation for it. Definitely. And has Moonshine, I guess, has it been increasing in popularity or decreasing over, I guess, the past decade or how is it? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, we launched Onyx Moonshine about 12, 12 years ago. And when, when, right about when we launched, there were no other legal moonshines on the market. We were one of the first in the, in, in the country to do that. 
Um, and now that now there's other brands you can buy in mason jars and there's all sorts of things with fruit and different sugars and flavors in them. We never bought into any of that. I wanted it to be served in the, the traditional style, which was a, a very traditional kind of style spirits bottle. And you wrote, um, I saw that you wrote like a book uh, that talked about American Moonshine. Was it something like that? Yeah, I, I, I wrote a book called Living Proof, Onyx Moonshine's Journey to Revive the American Spirit. And it was really kind of a, a, a bit of a story around how we learned the spirits industry from scratch. I mean, mind you, I, when we did this, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, you know, we were literally loading moonshine in the trunk of the cars and distributing them to liquor stores and restaurants throughout New England. And it was the best crash, uh, crash course in uh, the industry that you could possibly have. I wasn't working for a distributor. I wasn't behind a bar in a restaurant being approached by suppliers or salespeople. It was, it was from scratch. We were going from the farm to the distillery to the customers. And I spent, I spent some years doing that and I loved it. And it was really um, a way to understand the industry and to learn the science of the process and the beauty of the, the kind of beauty and the magic of the process. And then also the intrinsic uh, business model of the entire industry, which is rather complex in the U S um, to learn all those things and then put them into practice and, and to, and to do it well, we, we felt very fortunate and, and, uh, and I love those, those times. It was just what I needed in my late twenties and early thirties to kind of get into the industry and fully get it. And that was really the perfect precursor and kind of setup for the launch now of Hike Their Hassle Gin. And the, and the book itself, and I really wanted to a, a series of lessons that I learned around entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship. I mean, it was it was my um, you know having having left college after one semester and having no formal education, and then getting into the music industry, and then really quickly into the liquor business. Uh, Living Proof is really a book about that journey and all the lessons that we learned from raising capital from investors to lessons we learned on distributor management and what makes a brand viable in the market, why some brands have a reason to be and other ones don't. All those kind of critical essentials to the industry, I, I did the best I could to kind of spell them out. Now, mind you, this book is four or five years old. Being 37 now, that, that would put me at like 30 years, 30, 32 years old. And, and when I read it now, there's so many more lessons. And so there's maybe there's, there's, there's a part mm -hmm. coming at some point. Definitely. What's one of, uh, I guess, the key lessons that, you know, as you got more experience in, you know, with this launch of High, High Clear Castle Gin, is there, I guess, a key lesson that you would, you know, if you could rewrite, just add it right now to the book? Um, uh, to add something to the book um, today, my God, there would be, I mean, it would need a whole new book. There's so many things. But <laughs> I, I think the essence of your question is, you know, the, the most crucial takeaway and I, I feel like it's consistent with the book as I wrote it then, as it is right now with with High Claire and what we're what we're doing now and what I what I try to instill in the team and our customers and and everywhere I go, which is really authenticity, you know, commitment to being genuine. This world is 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 gotten so off kilter with that, um, kind of having an obsession with the with the consumer, giving them a quality product that is not you know, filled with cheap ingredients or chemicals and, and, and being authentic to the story and who we are as people. And then, and then, and then using that story and being committed to that truth in the brand and how the brand expresses itself. I think that's the most important thing for me, for any company, even that I buy from, I look for those characteristics. Then we try to, we try to stay deeply committed to those virtues 
in, in, in any product that we make from Hiker Castle Gin to our cigar line, the Hiker Castle Cigars. It's all about being deeply authentic. No, I'm, uh, I definitely liked your quote on kind of being obsessed with the consumer um, and really just putting, putting them first um, when you kind of design and think about what product you want to launch. But yeah, I really wanted to you know get into High Clear Castle Gin and how that connection started. So when you're in New England, you're starting the rise in popularity um, after writing this book and you know having the first moonshine distillery and whiskey distillery and increasing the popularity, you know, for moonshine in the New England area. What I, I guess started the communication between you and High Clear Castle, um, you know, and uh, how did that connection start? Well, so, so, so many, many millions of people around the world recognize High Clear Castle as Downton Abbey, which is the single most watched TV series in, in global history, actually. And, uh, and last year, or right at the end of 2019, before COVID hit, uh, the, the, the first motion picture came out. Now, now I hear there's rumors that a, a second one is, 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 is being planned. Um, so, so I, like many other people, um, I was exposed to High Clare through Downton Abbey. My wife had been trying to get me to watch the show for months, and I don't watch a whole lot of TV. And so I, I was kind of reluctant to watch this. And then one night she got me to do it. I sat down and I watched the show. And I was I was enchanted by the show. I mean, it was it's a beautiful, well written, well produced uh, series on what life was like in a, a grand English country home in the 1920s and 30s. And it's 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 really interesting to see the kind of that upstairs downstairs dynamic that it represents, and 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 all that kind of and, and the beauty is just amazing. And uh, and I'm a bit of a romantic anyway, so it caught it caught me. And so um, after one of the episodes, I, I had been looking for the next brand. Where are we going to do this next brand? And I've been looking for a year. You know, we had our regional success, our local success using our farm grains and mm. those kind of things with, with the distillery that we built here. But I, but I was really feeling like we could bring this kind of um, essence, this, this, this philosophy of genuine authenticity and production and lifestyle to life. And, uh, but I didn't have the brand. I hadn't figured out where I wanted to kind of plant this flag. And, um, and after Downton Abbey ended one night on PBS, it said, stay tuned. Because next we have a special on Heitler Castle, where Downton Abbey is filmed. And so I, I stayed tuned in. And for the next hour, I, was, I, was, uh, I watched in spellbound awe. I was, I was completely uh, taken by learning about High Clare's amazing history and, and, uh, and, and even in this feature, um, hearing stories and anecdotes from Lord and Lady Carnarvon who live at the castle currently. And um, it, it really inspired me. I felt like they, 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 they hit me as very, um, very kind, very hardworking people who were, were working hard to keep the estate going and keep the castle at its, um, you know, the top tier of uh, delivering the kind of traditions of Highclere and hospitality and all that that represents. And so the very next day I sent an email out uh, to the, the general email box of Highclere. And uh, I just said, look at, I'm, I'm an American entrepreneur. I'm looking for a, a brand that I can uh, really stick my teeth. And I really feel that Highclere um, considering it's a, it's a, it's a functioning working estate 
um, with a botanical garden and et cetera, et cetera, could be a really beautiful place, a beautiful stage to develop a brand around. And that very next day, Lord Carnarvon called me. And uh, long story short, two weeks later, I'm on a plane with with my wife um, at Lord Lady Carnarvon's invitation to stay at the castle for the weekend. And that weekend was critical because I really got to kind of learn firsthand what High Clare is really about, what running the estate really means, the amount of work involved in managing a 5,000 acre estate, uh, what, 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 what really kind of happens in the castle. And, and the most, the, there's, there's a beauty and there's an intensity with, with what it really takes and all the souls and people involved in, in keeping things going as well. And, uh, and, and, and very thankfully that became the beginning of, of, of very, very many trips over the past five years uh, and led to Lord Lady Carnarvon and I deciding to form a partnership to create this this beautiful brand. So I wanted to um, talk a little bit about the process with the gin as well as with the uh, cigars. So is the process, is everything grown on the estate? In terms of Heitler Castle gin, uh, as much as we can. So the base spirit for the gin is English wheat. So the spirit base is English wheat that does not come from Highclere. It is then um, it is then brought to our partners who are the oldest gin distillery in England, in Birmingham. And they have, in fact, the oldest copper pot gin still where we distill Highclere. We, we, we select the botanicals from the gardens behind the castle. These include... You know, uh, orange peels from the most beautiful, decadent little oranges the size of a golf ball. They're so fragrant. Uh, lime flowers we harvest from the Victorian era orangery as well. Lemon peels. Um, and then uh, and then we kind of dry them and prepare them to send to the distillery. Um, then behind the uh, Victorian era orangery is the monks, walled monks garden. And the walled monks garden has these incredible lavender beds that line the walls of the monk's garden. And those lavender beds were planted by the Bishop of Winchester in the ninth century. So they're over 1000 year old lavender beds. We harvest that, that lavender as well. So there's a touch of floral note on high Clare on the top note. Um, of course there's juniper, like the, the critical, you know, standard ingredient. Although we've backed off a bit on the juniper and we've gone more citrus forward, which I think is engaging people uh, that are not typical gin drinkers in Highclere because it's a very friendly uh, approach to gin. And then, uh, and then we also use oats that are grown on Highclere's estate. Uh, very famous in thoroughbred racehorse circles for growing some of the finest oats in the world. And we're the first gin, as, as far as I know, we're the first gin in the world to use oats in the gin botanical blend. And it adds this incredibly creamy, soft, almost velvety finish to the gin. If you had to say um, in the entire distilling process, is there a number one, um, I guess, resource that you love about being in England? Um, like with England, you're talking about, you know, does England have some of the best rye, some of the best grains in the world? You know, do they have, you're kind of talking about oaks and the lavenders. Is there anything that, you know, that England contributes very well to this gin making process? Well, in, in terms of our gin, I mean, the oats that Hythar grows are known to be the best oats in the world. I mean, especially for the thoroughbred racehorses, as I mentioned. I mean, these oats are top T 
tier oats. And um, I didn't know there was a top tier oat, to be honest with you, before <laughs> Lord Carnarvon had the brilliant idea to include the oats in the gin. And it was a brilliant idea. I, I, having distilled for over a decade, I did not think oats would do anything at all. And I was quite wrong. He was very right. And it did add this creaminess to the finish of the gin. So certainly the oats. Heichler is also well regarded for the barley they grow. And all the barley they grow on the estate is sent north to Scotland for scotch production. So the, 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 the terroir of England is absolutely incredible for, for whiskeys and gin. Uh, the botanical gardens grow uh, bountifully. And, uh, and even now, uh, today, Highclere and, um, and many other estates across England are producing some very fine white wines. So there's some white grape varietals that are doing, that are performing really, really well and getting top dollar and coming out and winning some serious awards. And Highclere's even planted uh, some, some white grapes uh, in very small amounts that are kind of getting going on the estate too. So, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the terroir of Highclere and, and that kind of section of England that southern kind of middle section of England is 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 great for crops. Oh, okay. And on the, I guess the opposite side with the cigars. So, were, did you have to be in the process on, uh, I guess, sourcing the cigar material, or um, you know, how is, uh, you know, was that in the like Dominican Republic or a specific country? Yeah, the cigar the cigar uh, project was a bit of a detour for me from from the gin. As we were as we were preparing the gin, I was at Highclere, and as 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 as, uh, as anybody who's watched Downton Abbey knows, the tradition of any a proper English country weekend is that after dinner the gentlemen retire for a cigar and a brandy or or a, a, a you know whiskey or or a gin now um, for cigars. Now, nowadays, it still happens at Highclere just that way, except that the ladies join. And so, um, you know, I was, I was there at Highclere for a weekend and experiencing a, a, a traditional weekend um, party. And, of course, we all went to the library and outside of the library is this beautiful terrace for cigars. And I came home and Connecticut, of course, is, is well-renowned in the world for producing uh, Connecticut shade tobacco. And I happened to have a friend who is a world-renowned cigar blender named Nick Malillo. He's the founder of Foundation Cigar Company. And I came home and I said to myself, uh, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be something if we produced a cigar line? I mean, it's so deeply real on, uh, you know, Pike Claire's culture and what happens kind of in this entertainment world and lifestyle world. And, uh, and so I, I approached my friend Nick. I said, Nick, would you be willing to partner with me to craft a cigar worthy of Highclere, something that was enjoyed at Highclere from the 1920s. We had the invoices from cigars that Lord Cadarvin's great-grandfather was bringing into Highclere 100 years ago and having readily available at his parties. And, uh, and Nick thankfully said yes. And two weeks later, I found myself in Nicaragua with Lord Cadarvin, like some, uh, some uh, Indiana Jones movie, as we're, uh, as we're trying different cigar blends and trying to select the perfect one for Highclere. And I'm very proud to say that we have two lines. We have the Highclere Castle Edwardian and the Highclere Castle Victorian, both of which have gotten some of the best marks by Cigar Aficionado and some of the most influential cigar uh, reviewers in the world and, uh, and, is, and is very rapidly growing. So the cigars have done very well in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, even the boxes are handmade on, uh, uh, from sustain sustainably grown uh, Nicaraguan red cedar. And the cigars themselves are just 
ridiculously luxurious blends and very, very smooth smokes. And they actually pair very well with the gin. The gin acts kind of as a, a cleanser of the palate in between, in between smokes. So I, I think the High Claire Victorian was just given a 93 or 94 score um, from, from Cigar Aficionado. Oh, okay. And I guess does that um, help out on upselling the gin? I mean, if they, you know, if they pair well to, with each other, do you market it to maybe a specific on-premise locations and say, you know, if you like this gin product, you also love our line cigars that go with it? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the, the cigars are carried at some of the best uh, lounges and retailers in the country and as is the gin and they do complement themselves. I mean, gin and cigar as a pairing is not traditional. That's not something most people think of. You know, most cigar smokers are looking for a, a bourbon, a scotch, a cognac, to, or maybe even a red wine. Um, I think the idea of pairing a gin with it is a new concept that is not traditional. And, and we love that because we're a bit on the edge and fringe of what we try to do. And it's, it's, it's glorious the way they taste together. Um, and, we, and we try to promote that as much as we can, of course. And it's, it, there's a lot of customers around the country that support both brands. And of course, we we get behind that and try to do cigar events and cigar pairing events and uh, gin, gin dinners and things like that. And it's it's a lot of fun. So I wanted to uh, go back into when when you start, started the conversation with uh, High High Clear Castle, and you know you kind of mentioned on you were receiving great local success in the New England area and you wanted to speak to an organization that, you know, could take your brand and, you know, take an idea and make it a global sensation. I was kind of wondering on what the marketing differences between having a domestic product versus an international product. Um, Are there any key differences and is it is being in the international, you know, having an international gin, is that, uh, I guess, more competitive than, you know, if you're a gin in the United States? In the surface, uh, I, I, I would say it would appear so, but it is deeply, absolutely not. You know, launching a brand successfully is about going deep in the market. It's about establishing relationships and telling the brand story. It's about... Um, helping people to understand why special brands are special and why they're authentic and why uh, in, in Heichler Council Jin's case, you know, how and why have we won 25 international gold awards. So whether it's a small uh, bar in you know, the middle of uh, Tennessee or, uh, uh, you know, or the finest club, private club in London, it's the same job and the same story. So it's just done on a much larger level. And of course, we require a much larger team and a much larger network of, 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 of partners. So, uh, so no, not really, not really at all. It, it, it's kind of a, the lesson that I learned was taking the, and this was the intention, right? Was to take the success of what we've learned on a regional level and simply replicate it on a global one, uh, on a brand that has global appeal. I mean, there's people from all over the world that, that love and know and follow Hector Castle Lady Carnarvon and her beautiful blog and the stories of life at the castle, what it's really like. And, and my vision was to really liquefy that into a spirit that is the spirit of High Claire, the spirit of hospitality and, and entertainment to that level. And, uh, and, and then, you know, the job is to tell that story, whether, we're, you know, we're on the verge of uh, 
We're launching in Malta right now. We're launching in, in Hungary. We're about to launch in Hong Kong and China, in addition to launching in also California and Canada. And the job is the same in all of them. Tell the story, you know, be, be authentic. The, the, you know, find the right team, find the right partners, stick to our truths, stick to the core values of the company and the brand and, uh, and don't move or sacrifice those things and be obsessed with quality and, uh, and bring people into the fold so that they're part of the journey. We want our customers, we want our consumers, we want our retailers, we want our, our bartenders to be a part of this journey because we really are kind of setting the standard in the bar at a level that no other brand can do. And, and, and the reason why is because of what the brand is, what it represents. So you talked about um, really some of these uh, really cool uh, fast adaptations and, you know, going and expanding into a lot of these different new cities and new countries. And I wanted to ask on, you know, has this pandemic um, starting March last year has it had any major uh, repercussions to the business as far as, I guess, marketing to trying to distribute into new countries and marketing to an on-premise or off-premise customer? Or has the product still been doing very well during this pandemic? Yeah, it's, it's kind of both in a way. Like, uh, of course, we were affected. I mean, we, la- we launched in, in the United States like, uh, you know, five, four or five months, something like that before the pandemic hit. So uh, all of our, you know, partners around the country, around the world, our retail partners, our our restaurant partners, our bartender friends, our mixologists, our hotel groups, um, you know, we're, we're we're very close with Viking Cruise Line, who who parked every vessel. Uh, there was no there was no cruise uh, there were no cruises happening. So yeah, we were definitely impacted in a very major way. Um, at the same time, I think we were very fortunate because. Highclere does represent something very unique and special, and our customer base has been growing rapidly. And they they they're connecting with the brand in a deeper emotional way, I think, than 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 one connects with a typical brand because of what the brand really is. So, for example, a few months uh, a month or two after the shutdown, we started doing something called virtual cocktails at the castle, where on Facebook and Instagram we started uh, live broadcasting at predetermined times, cocktail parties, virtually hosted by Lord and Lady Carnarvon at the castle. And we've had over 500,000 people participate in these. And we did many of them through the year. So on the one hand, it was, of course, challenging. We had just launched. Um, we felt so deeply for our restaurant tour partners and, and everybody who was representing us on, on the cocktail menus and behind the bar. And we did a lot of efforts to support them, just get some money into the pockets of the bartenders who were laid off or furloughed. You know, that was a big priority for us. We, we, we raised quite a, quite a bit of money and started actually hiring bartenders from around the U.S. just to make cocktails. <laughs> there was no real purpose for the cocktails. We just started hiring them to make cocktails just to kind of get some money in their pocket and show them that, hey, you know, we're here to the best of our ability. Uh, on the other hand, we really focused on the consumer, too. Uh, having lost all the restaurants, you, you know, uh, Grayson, that brands are are built in restaurants. They're built on premise, and we didn't have on premise to build our brand, and we're brand new. So we had to kind of look at the customer and say, how do we engage the customer? How do we tell the customer our story? How do we welcome the customer into our castle and get them to kind of enjoy and appreciate the hospitality of Lord and Lady Carnarvon? And we did that in a very fun, uh, low key way that I think um, 
you know, Lord Lidikadov and I are amazing at sharing anecdotes of life at the castle and historical tidbits around the castle or what's in a given room. And we did that really, really well. So I think we pivoted when we had to. And I think it was a, a, in a way a blessing to connect with our customer in a more deeper way and bring more people into the brand. At the same time, it was a challenge for us because we did lose on premise. And just now it's coming back to life. So, of course, we're we're going back to life in, in restaurants and bartenders and uh, hotels and things like that. So uh, both good, both bad. Uh, one of the benefits and perks to the whole thing is m- many of our competitors on a very big level uh, furloughed everybody and kind of didn't stay in the market. And we did stay in the market through the whole thing. We, we, we In many cases, in many markets, we were the only brand with people going into restaurants that had, you know, 20% occupancy and outdoors only. And we were still going in to try to support them. So we de- definitely took an approach of do whatever we can to, to, to support the customer and the consumer. I liked how you kind of, uh, you know, you kind of mentioned on the on-premise locations being, you know, the start of many brands. And just because you can go in and, you know, see the spirit, see the cocktails it can make and kind of see it in front of your eyes, uh, that could possibly make you want to buy the brand. I was kind of wondering if, uh, does High Clear Castle Gin, do they do, is there any specific High High Clear Castle cocktails that can be made with your gin product? Yeah, for sure. Of course. We've got, uh, we we actually went back in the history books a bit at High Clear in the archives and uh, Lady Carnarvon found handwritten notes from the head butler at High Clare in the 1920s on the cocktails that were being served. And so we, we have reproduced that on our website. Um, actually, when you sign up for our newsletter um, uh, on our website, at, at the very bottom is a little spot subscribe kind of thing, you actually could receive a, a virtual digital copy of the Butler's Guide to English Cocktails, which contains many of the the, the the main cocktails served at Highclere over the last hundred years. And they're still made there exactly the same way today. And, uh, and they're really classic and they're really good. No, that's, uh, yeah, that's nice. I have to check out that link to see what, um, cause I mean, yeah, I'm not aware of what the, uh, I guess, traditional English cocktails, uh, you know, consist of. Yeah. I mean, they were very simple. You know, back back then, back in the 1920s, cocktails were not really a thing. Cock- cocktails were kind of born from prohibition and uh, masking poorly produced, you know, black market spirits. And uh, and that kind of became the fad and all the rage in Chicago and New York. And that, of course, Paris and London. And then from London, of course, to the countryside. So in the 1920s, it was really a renaissance for the cocktail and spirit culture. Before then, you just really drank spirits neat. And... Uh, so it's, it's, it's a cool story around that. I definitely urge, you know, there's so many amazingly fancy gourmet cocktails out there, but the classics reign. And uh, you have the classic martini, the classic gin and tonic, the classic Negroni. These cocktails are there for a reason. They're never going to go away because they're amazing. So, you know, I definitely urge you to, uh, and any of your listeners to, um, to go on there and check them out because they're, they're very simple. They're not overly complicated. There's no, there's no endangered species used in the making of, of these cocktails. You know, they're very, very basic, but basic in a, a proportional way, in a, in a very classic way. And there's something to be said for that. I mean, it's the same with food, right? You can get fancy with food all day long, but, but the best foods from every country to country are the peasant foods. 
right? The simple foods, simple ingredients, three or four, no more. And that done right, prepared properly. That's how they, that, that's the best food in the world. And that's the best cocktail. Mm, definitely. So you kind of mentioned on, you know, really the being able to check out the link and check out some of these cocktails to wrap this up. I wanted to just ask on, you know, where can the viewers check out if they're, if they're wanting to, you know, check out some of this high clear castle gin, um, you know, if it's able to be able to be ordered online or, you know, if there's any locations near them, um, you know, where uh, can they go to check it out? Yeah, it's, it's very easy. Highclarecastlegin.com. It's Highclare, that's C-L-E-R-E, castlegin.com. I mean, I, I, we'd love to have people engage with us on Instagram and Facebook. We're very active. We're always posting new cocktails, uh, invitations to private events. Check out our website, subscribe to our newsletter for to be invited to things too or unique opportunities uh, and to buy a bottle. You can buy a bottle right from our website. If you're in the U.S., if, I think we deliver to 40, 45 U.S. states right to your door. Uh, so people are welcome to jump on, grab a bottle, have it delivered. Sometimes we include some extra goodies in there. Uh, and of course, if you're in uh, also 20, uh, 27 EU countries and the UK is available for online e-commerce shipping too. So if you're from any of those markets, you can, you can grab a, a bottle of High Claire delivered in two, three, four days tops. <laughs> No, that's awesome. I definitely have to, uh, you know, I definitely urge everyone to check out some of those links. I'm definitely going to be on there, try to get on one of those live events with the the showing the castle sometime, the happy hours at the uh, High Clear Castle. That sounds fun. Oh, I'd love to have you. You're welcome anytime. I think we're going to do the next one in June or July will be the next one. So we'll let you know, Grayson. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Well, I definitely wanted to thank you again, Adam, for coming on to this podcast with me and having this conversation i thought it was i i mean i kind of knew beforehand i thought it was you had a very cool background i thought just the high clear castle storyline would be so interesting and you know definitely went beyond that you know during the episode i thought you know it was really cool to just kind of i think it, it must be bizarre to do business with something that's has such a long history and you know is able to find notes from the 1700s and further back yeah it's it must be a very bizarre kind of workplace well it it feels um you know uh, i i think we all have a sense of um pride in that what we're doing um is is projecting and also kind of telling the story that is so beautiful and again like i said earlier in a world where so many of our brands are made in marketing boardrooms and they're made up and nobody really cares. We all care like perhaps way too much. And uh, from Lord Lady Cadarvin to myself and the rest of, rest of this team, to our consumers, to our customers and our, our bartenders and retailers, like everybody cares so much. So it's, it is a special brand and we're, we're incredibly proud of, of uh, what it really stands for. It goes beyond just the spirit. It's, it's the spirit of Highclere and, uh, and we've liquefied that. And I think, uh, I think that matters. I think it's different. Definitely. Well, I wanted to thank you again, Adam, and I wanted to again give another shout out and praise to Lord and Lady Cadarvin, um, you know, for uh, having Adam on here and you know having this conversation. And again, wanted to just tell every one of my viewers to check out those links. I know I'm going to have it in the bio, and 
you know, check out this product. Well, thank you so much. It was great to be on, Grace, and thanks for having me. Definitely. Thank you again, man. Thank you. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Platinum Mask Podcast. Stay connected with us directly through the theplatinummask.com. You can also join the discussion on Instagram at graymask12. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through maskgrayson at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, raise a glass to success, no matter how you define it.